Good morning, this is Dr. Dan Guerra, and this is Authentic Biochemistry. Uh, the uh, lecture series that you hear on podcast, which I try to deliver at least three times a week, um, but sometimes more than that. I haven't given a lecture now in a couple of days, and so I feel uh, terrible about that, so I'm going to give you a lecture even on a Sunday. So today is going to be one of those amazing um, final derivations of a long arc of lectures, which I tend to be doing in authentic biochemistry. We did a long one on aging. We did a long one on cytoepigenetics. Um, and this current one, which we started in the summer, is on membrane biochemistry. And this is membrane biochemistry lecture series, just a series or an arc of lectures, number 75. Now, today, I'm going to give you sort of a treat. I'm going to mix together, hopefully in a good solution where both of the uh, <clears throat> solutes uh, are going to be soluble in the solvent. And those two solutes are going to be epistemology and lipid biochemistry. Okay? And the solvent is going to be metaphysics. So the reason I'm doing this is I hinted at the last couple of lectures and talked a little bit about it. To understand research science, I've come to the conclusion that rational judgment needs to be at the forefront, needs to be in the vestibule of this great cathedral that we call biochemistry. And not only biochemistry, but any natural sciences. I'm not going to talk about mathematics, which some people call science, uh, but I would say any natural science, which includes physics, chemistry, and then the derivatives of those two bran major branches. Um, and biology being more or less a derivation of both chemistry and physics. I think that I'm saying that correctly in terms of the um, development and differentiation of biological sciences, starting really most significantly uh, way back in the Greek and in the Arabic tradition and also in the Roman tradition, which is sandwiched between those two in terms of biomedicine, but the also frank understanding of biological systems, both plant and animal, and then microbes, because it's an interesting thing, because we didn't know microbes uh, necessarily existed, although they were pretended to exist. We didn't know they existed because we didn't have microscopy. Once we had that, then we knew that they were, we were living in a sea of microbes, right, an ocean, um, both internally and externally. But the biological sciences, I think, were derivative of utilizing human reason rational arguments generated by logical judgments that were allowed to um, be then developed into premises or propositions which could be used as truth statements uh, to derive conclusions, right? And doing a dialectical analysis like that and then furthering that with experimentation and generating hypothetical deductions um, setting out an experimental plan, conducting the experiment with the correct tools, and then generating data 
the data then being initially analyzed, uh, both mathematically and just rationally, and then ultimately converting the data unbiasedly into evidence, then the evidence being used to determine whether or not the original null hypothesis was correct or incorrect. And then moving from that deductive process to the inductive process, which is often where science uh, is kind of out on its own. It's free falling in a way. And um, that induction, so saying that because all these particulars tend to act this way, then in general, every time we look for those particulars in nature, they will function the same way. That's where the mistakes are often made. And I don't think we would make them as often um, when we're designing experiments or when we're interpreting results. Um, if we think, go back and think about the molecular dynamics of logical judgments. So that's a very long prolegomena, and I'm sorry for that, but not really. Because after all, this is a complex series of subjects, and so we're not going to be able to discuss it unless I give you some um, reason to even develop this in an authentic biochemistry format, right? I think it's absolutely essential, too. It's not just because it's fun intellectually, although it's that, too. So with only, like most recently, phospholipid molecular species accounting, where the metaphor fluidity will obtain as a surrogate for a propitious synthesis a priori of the ongoing processive authentic biochemistry subject matter of late, which is membrane biochemistry, I'm going to proceed to deliver this lecture, and, I'm, and it's going to be a synthesis, and therefore it will be a dialectical event ontology. So epistemological judgment is knowledge. Knowledge is what I'm defining as. I didn't define this. This is in the philosophical literature. This is my, I, I've opted to choose knowledge working definition by calling it JTB, justified true belief. So a lot of argumentation about that uh, in epistemology. You can go back and look at that if you want to. Um, I've read a lot of the argumentation and I've come to the conclusion that a good definition of knowledge is JTB, justified true belief. And I've talked about it many times and I've written about it. So. Let's think about what judgments are. If epistemological judgment is the roadmap to knowledge, there are four types of judgments. I mentioned these last time. There's quantity, which can be subdivided into universal, particular, and singular. Quality, which can be subdivided into affirmative, negative, infinite. Relational, which of course is the all-important categorical, the all significant hypothetical and the all um, recollective disjunctive. And then finally, modality, which is my favorite, of course, which involves the subcategories for that judgment of modality being problematic, assertoric, or apodictic. Now let's break these down. So, Subject predicate propositions in this, uh, in these discussions are known as monadic 
propositions. They're that because they are categorical and they're dialectical. That is, you can logically combine them and alternately separate them at, at each as events in time. So they're events, they're not substances, right? This whole description in natural science isn't about substances, it's about events, uh, a la Whitehead, another great philosopher uh, uh, who actually uh, contributed most of his work in the late 19th and early 20th century. So it's interesting because most, most, I think, of the, the greatest philosophical leaps occurred, um, well, in, in Athens in, you know, 400 to 300 BC, right? All right. Now, <clears throat> when you think about universal judgments, they're in the form of, this is now quantity, a universal judgment is in the form of all X's are Y's. A particular judgment is the form some X's are Y's. And singular judgments are in the form this X is Y, okay? Or the X is Y. Right now, why are those described? Because think about what we're doing in science. If I say uh, all X's are Y's, the universal quantitative judgment, for example, all membrane lipids are phospholipid lipids. Say so, you know that that statement, universal judgment, is not true because you know that there are sphingolipids and also prenal lipids and isoprenal lipids. Right. So what about particular judgment? Some X's are Y's. So some membrane lipids are phospholipid lipids. Yes, that statement holds. So whenever you're thinking about looking at the evidence of a paper and you're looking at the etiology of how the paper is put together, you might think, well, I don't need to worry about this judgment. I assume all of this is worked out. Don't assume anything. If we're studying research science, to use the word surrogate again, we're using research science as a surrogate to understand nature, natural phenomena, then we better be darn sure that we're generating authentic, logical judgments, which will arrive at truth statements. Otherwise, the very first moment of the research project is flawed because we're not basing it on a foundation of truths, okay? And the obtained truths without throwing in a lot of subjective um, metaphysical diatribe, subjective meaning that it's based on prior dogma or it's based on a research lab's previous plenum of research. If we're going to try to remove it from those subjective clauses of interpretation, we have to be able to use the sort of sound judgment, right? So these are simple examples, but I think you can understand that they just get more sophisticated as the nature gets more, as the biochemistry gets more sophisticated. But they're the same judgments, right? They're the same crystal clear, rational, organized thought. Okay, now let's go look to the judgments called quality. So there are many judgments 
in research science involving biochemistry, which are quantitative. I think we can all agree to that. How about qualitative? So in qualitative, we talk about affirmative judgments. For example, that's like saying, it is the case that cholesterol is precursor to steroid hormones. That's affirmative qualitative judgment. Then you have a negative qualitative judgment. That's the form as no cholesterol is a precursor to steroids. You know that that's false, right? But what about saying something like no hormone necessarily interacts with steroids? That would include peptide hormones. Well, is that statement supported? Is that judgment supported? We have to look at the research science. And sometimes it is supported and sometimes it isn't. But is that an equivocation? Can you include that into a summary judgment? Can you generate a conclusive statement that is a dialectical, purposeful, rational thought now used as a new truth? Well, you have to always put in qualifiers. Do the qualifiers negate the initial judgment? You have to go back and ask that question each time. Otherwise, you may not be inferring from a general rule. And that means, again, the foundation is put on shaky ground at best. Actually, the foundation could be put on the lack of truth, the lack of a validation. And again, remember with um, logical arguments, a valid logical argument doesn't necessarily have to be true. All that means when it's valid is that the conclusion uh, is demanded or obtained by the premises. Okay, so the premises or the propositions require that conclusion. That's how it's put. But it doesn't mean it just simply means that moving from the um, logical propositions to the logical conclusion that that movement in the argument was done appropriately or with validity. But a sound argument, remember, that has to occur. You have to have, again, uh, the requirement that the conclusion comes from the premises. That's there. And the sound argument as well. But on top of it, the sound argument requires that the propositions are true. And how do you get to truth? Well, that's another whole story. And epistemology, and you have to then derive the epistemology and the metaphysical discussion. And I'm not going to do that right now. But I've done it in the past. And don't worry, we will pepper that in occasionally, even maybe today. Okay, so let's move on now. An infinite qualitative judgment. So we did affirmative, negative, infinite qualitative judgment is X's are non-Y's. So that's like saying uh, the lipid cholesterol is not a glycerol lipid which, of course, is, an, is a perfectly good statement, right? But it's an infinite judgment because what you're trying to do now is explore what is required for a given event in biochemistry to be isolated qualitatively in, say, one framework. And that framework could just simply be 
the class of uh, molecules, right? The class of molecular species, chemical molecular species, which is pretty easy to get up a straight definition of, right? But even that, people, people meaning research scientists, can often be very vague. And we, anytime there's something is vague at the beginning, it only becomes at the end completely chaotic, right? Okay, so let's move on. Relational judgments. So you have categorical, really important. Categorical judgments basically repeat that simple atomic one event subject predicate. They go back and say, X's are Y's. But now we're talking about the relationship. We're not talking about a set and a subset. We're talking about the relationship, right? So um, let's see, what's a good one? Um, all phosphoglycerol, um, all phosphatidylcholine molecular species are lipids containing glycerol backbone. Okay. Now that sounds like it's in a group, but it's also talking about a relationship. The relationship is with the structure and then the molecular species involvement and function. Right? Function. Okay. Second type of relational judgment. These are hypothetical, very important research science. And they're not atomic, they're molecular in that they say, if X's or Y's, this is now just the straight uh, bare bones of it, uh, uh, using symbolic terms. If X's are Y's, then A's are B's. Okay? The other way is put often, if P, then Q. But see all the movement within there, those molecular movements. If X's are Y's, so if... Um, Lipids, lipids are in lipid membrane rafts, then lipid membrane rafts support plasma membrane sequential dynamic activity. Okay. Now I just came up that top of my head. Now that's a true statement because I'm trying to usually think of what I think are true statements. But see how easily that statement could be used in the malfeasance. You could simply make one slight change in the copula in one of those statements, and you could completely modify the validity and therefore the soundness of the judgment. Okay. And then the third kind of relational judgment is called disjunctive. These are also fun. They're also molecular, of course. And they say, again, using X's and Y's, X's are either Y's or A's, or dot, 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 right? So this is where each disjunction that you carry out of the total domain of possible functions is mutually exclusive to the rest of the set. And therefore, you have to exhaustively describe all of the partitions of that set. So disjunctive judgments are the very, very critical aspect, I think, of an inductive phase of scientific reasoning. Finally, let's talk about modality. I told you that's my favorite. That form of judgment has to do with the use of a simple grammatical component, really. 
So the copula does not, must not intrude on the content. Nevertheless, it's going to play a very significant role on how you use your a priori faculty of reasoning. So how does this work? Again, I'm going to get down to the level of sim symbolic logic because it, it's easier to, rather than me thinking about examples, right? Because I want to move on. A problematic judgment is a form of a modality. Problematic or a modal judgment. Problematic judgments are this form. X's could be wise. And the best way to read that out is that which is at least possible. It's one mode in biological research, in biochemical research. That is at least possible, right, when you make a judgment. Second is assertoric. That's in the form, symbolically, of X's are here and now wise. Again, that's what is, right? So that which I now assert is there. So I'm saying this event that I'm measuring, uh, this chemical reaction, this biochemical reaction I'm measuring in the mitochondrion, I just now observed using mass spec. It doesn't mean that, um, it, it, does, it doesn't mean that it's apodictic. Apodictic is the third form of the modal judgment. Let me tell you what apodictic is. Apodictic is essentially necessary, right? So apodictic judgments are in the form of X's must be wise, right? Or the electron transport chain in mammalian mitochondria must oxidize NADH with complex one, okay? That's necessary. So you can assert that, right? And you can also even start out by using it as a problematic judgment of modality, because you could say um, it could be, right? Of course it could be, because it is here and now, and we're saying it's necessary. Because without NADH oxidation, you don't start the electron transport chain normally where it starts. Now, again, you can put caveats in there because you can talk about the intrusion of succinate right, from the fumarate pathway. But to complete the electron transport chain and to get the complete proton motive force to make the required number of ATP via oxidative phosphorylation with the number of electrons that were driven into the nucleotide NADH, uh, which was because of uh, biochemical pathways like glycolysis or fatty acid oxidation, you have to be able to deliver that first reaction. So it's necessary, you see? Now, here is a, um, a point of departure from this epistemological discussion. And the departure now is going to get back into biochemistry. Think about naturally occurring carotenoids. Now, carotenoids... When we think about them like beta carotene, which is in the diet, right? we think about it being a precursor to what we call vitamin A, which is an isoprenoid lipid that we subclass as a retinoid, right? Retinoic acid, retinaldehyde. Think about the various types of retinoids that are involved in the molecular aspects of vision, vertebrate vision, 
Uh, you use the retinoids. Retinoids, of course, are very important ligands for transcription factors too, which we've talked about incessantly in authentic biochemistry, right? The retinoic acid receptors. Now, naturally occurring retinoids are all synthesized by two basic five-carbon precursors. What are they? Well, we just went through them with the cholesterologenesis pathway. IPP, which is isopentanoid diphosphate or pyrophosphate, and its isomer, dimethyl allyl pyrophosphate or DMAPP. Now, there are a lot of different compounds, including steroids, ubiquinones, chlorophylls, which are the photo, uh, photopigment uh, compound in plants, of course. They're all synthesized from those isoprene precursors. So they all could collectively be called isoprenoids or sometimes just terpenoids. Now, all the way until after I finished graduate school, which, you know, I finished graduate school in the 1980s, right? But by the early 1990s, after I was out of graduate school, I was in postdoc and I was uh, already doing research work and getting into a faculty position. It was, it was still believed that isoprenoid precursors were synthesized exclusively through the mevalonic acid pathway. Now, remember, this is not a pathway that mammals possess, right? Now, we can synthesize cholesterol via the mevalonic acid pathway, but the the, the um, diversification of that pathway into things like retinoids and the isoprene compounds you find is a coniferous trees, which are growing outside my window here. We don't have those metabolic pathways. We do have the mevalonic acid pathway. We can go through IPP and DMAPP. I explained that to you, right? That's de novo cholesterologenesis. But there's once that initial phase is started, all the different branch points are exclusive to specific um, living organisms, right? Different orders of organisms, different families even, okay? So think about the mevalonic acid path where we talked about it. That's a series of enzymatically catalyzed reactions where you have basically three molecules of acetate. And, and of course, it's the thioester acetyl-CoA. And they, they get condensed and modified via reduction and phosphorylation. And then that very important decarboxylation to go from C6 to C5 to make isopentyl pyrophosphate, right? Now, work going on in the 90s in eubacteria and in higher plants showed there was another route for making isopentyl pyrophosphate. And that route is known as the MEP pathway which is a non-mevalonic acid pathway. And, and, and mammals don't have this pathway, right? That pathway involves a very important intermediate called methyl erythritol 4-phosphate, or MEP. And it utilizes the triosugar glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate. That's the initial triosugar. So think about that. That's a glycolytic <laughs> a pathway intermediate, right? And you know that that glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate can also be used to make glycerol-3-phosphate, which is the backbone of all the glycerol lipids, right? Of course. 
Okay. Now, pyruvic acid, of course, is the other starting material. So think about the oxidated pentose phosphates shunt. Now, this erythritol we're talking about is synthesized from erythrose 4 phosphate. Now, that's, of course, an intermediate from the OPP pathway, which is what I call the oxidated pentose phosphate pathway. And by dephosphorylation followed by a reduction of the resultant erythrose. That's how you get erythritol, the alcohol. So erythrose reductase catalyzes that last step. And that's the key enzyme for the biosynthesis for erythritol, which is going to be the precursor to the non-mevalonic acid isoprenoid pathway, which was discovered in the 1990s in plants and new bacteria. Okay. So I'm not going to go about telling you all about the OPP pathway, but you know there's an oxidative branch, which basically starts off the glucose-6-phosphate. You make NADPH a couple of times. In between there, there's a lactonase, as I recall. And then you make um, ribulose 5-phosphate. And then ribulose 5-phosphate can be isomerized or epimerized. Then you have a lot of C5 uh, metabolism. Uh, you have a transketolase uh, reaction. And you're going to make cetohepulose-7-phosphate, glyceraldi-3-phosphate. Then a transaldolase reaction, which then synthesizes erythrose-4-phosphate. And then fructose 6-phosphate, right? So erythrose 4-phosphate is obviously going to be carbon 4 because fructose is a 6-carbon and you started off with 10 carbons by condensing cytohepulose, uh, by utilizing transaldolase reaction, I should say. It's not a condensation, it's a 